You can go ahead and have a seat uh, this morning and want to take a second to welcome you. Welcome those of you joining online as well together this morning. I want to invite you to go and turn with me in your Bible to Titus chapter 2. That's where we're going to spend our time together as a church family today. Um, if you're here with us, new with us, visiting with us for the first time, uh, we for the last few weeks as a church family... I've been walking verse by verse through the book of Titus, um, and so we've spent three weeks here already. Lord willing, we'll be here today and two more weeks from now. So Titus chapter 2, again today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. I want to ask you a question as we, we get started together here this morning. Um, what comes to your mind, what do you think about when you think about doctrine? What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear that word doctrine? Now, I think for some of us, there's a sense of excitement. We like the idea of diving deep into God's Word, picking apart all the nuances of Scripture. We uh, like to learn some new big words that make us feel a little bit smarter. We like to dive into the languages and into church history and into abstract theological concepts and constructs, and we're eager whenever we hear this word doctrine. But then for some of us, uh, we already have a sense of boredom, like you're already bored just me talking for 30 seconds, hearing the word doctrine. You think of something that's cold, something that's dull, uh, something within the body of Christ even can be restrictive. It seems divisive. It can be a Impressive if it's used the wrong way. And when we tend to think of doctrine, we tend to think in concepts and constructs. So when I think doctrine, you think like the doctrine of election, which we worked through together uh, a few weeks ago. Think about the doctrine of the atonement. You think about the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, the doctrine of the virgin birth. We think about the doctrine of the return of Jesus Christ and end times and things like this. And so whenever we think about doctrine, we have a tendency to think in terms of concepts and constructs. We have doctrine that pertains to worship. We want to rightly understand who God is so that we can rightly relate to him. We think of doctrine in terms of discipleship. We want to accurately articulate the faith and pass it on to the next generation of believers. We'll think about doctrine in terms of fellowship, uh, truth from error, discerning what's right and what's wrong, distinguishing orthodox faith from unorthodox faith. You know, uh, over the uh, last few weeks, we've looked at through the book of Titus, how it is that uh, gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. And to share with you three weeks ago the words of Ray Ortland, how he said, if we're not careful, a church can unsay by its culture what it says in its doctrine. We have to be people who don't just preach, we have to practice. Our belief should result in behavior. And, and, and being orthodox in our preaching isn't enough. We also have to be orthodox in our living and day-to-day -day lives. And could it be that it's so easy for a church to be sound in its doctrine but unhealthy in its culture? Could that be because we have doctrine for worship, for discipleship, and fellowship, but very little doctrine as it pertains to relationship? Whenever we think about doctrine, we don't tend to think about relationships. We don't tend to think just about the practical living of our everyday lives. But as we open up Titus chapter 2 together this morning, what we're going to find is sound doctrine for relationships. And what we're going to do today and next week, this is part one of two, is we're going to look together at the doctrine of relationships. If you uh, go back to where we were a couple weeks ago, Titus 1 verse 5, the apostle Paul says to Titus, who was a young pastor in Crete, someone that he had discipled and had a significant personal investment in, he said, I've left you in Crete to put what remained into order. While there was a foundation of gospel ministry in Crete, and while uh, there was a healthy church that was being built, there was still uh, mostly a, an, a disorganized structure. There wasn't much structure as the church needed some direction. It needed some clarity. It needed some more definition. And that is why Paul had left Titus in Crete, was to bring about those things. 
He said, set what remained into order. And so we spent the last two weeks looking at how the first order of business was the priority of healthy leadership. Two weeks ago, we saw uh, the picture of the biblically qualified pastor elder within the church. And then last week, we saw the, the picture of those who were disqualified from leading within the church. So we said two opposite profiles. So where we spent the last couple of weeks looking at how the gospel shapes leadership within the church, we're going to spend the next two weeks now focusing on how the gospel shapes relationships within the church. Now, if you weren't here two weeks ago, I'm, I'm going to encourage you just to go back and listen to that message and, and, and just to, to be able to see where it is we've already come from, because we've already laid some really important foundations together that we're just not going to have time uh, to recover again this morning. But uh, what we saw two weeks ago in some, somewhat a controversial territory is, is just a, a clear picture that God's good and perfect design in creation is for men to serve as the spiritual leaders of their homes and of the church. That's not a result of sin. That's not the result of the fall. That is before sin entered into the world. That was God's perfect design for the home and for the church. And everything that's a departure from that is a distortion of that. And so we've already laid that foundation together as a church family. And so I'm just going to go ahead and uh, rip the Band-Aid off right away before we even open up the Scripture together this morning to say, hey, once again, we're going to step into some tense waters. Where we're going to look at a couple verses of Scripture here that have historically been used in some pretty bad ways. And so before we even read them, I want you to hear me to say, uh, be the first to say, like, hey, these verses have been used in some really terrible ways. And we're not in agreement with the ways uh, these verses have been very terribly used very often uh, against women in particular within the body of Christ. And yet we come to God's word understanding that his truth is not meant to scare us, it's meant to strengthen us. And so as, as contrary as some of these messages are going to run to the culture that we live in today, we believe that God's word is good and right and true. And what he displays for us in Titus chapter 2 is his good and perfect design for how men and women should function together, both in the home and in the building up of the church. So today and next week, we're going to look at the doctrine of relationships. We're going to look at good doctrine as it pertains to how we relate to one another as men and women within the body of Christ. If you're following along in your notes this morning, this is our overview, and this is what we're going to see in these few verses. It's that God's good and perfect design and creation is for men and women to fulfill complementary and corresponding roles within the church and within the home. And when men and women fulfill their unique God-ordained calling, the home and the church will be faithfully built up, and the message of the gospel will be beautifully displayed. When we relate to one another as men and women within our homes and within the church, the home is faithfully built up, and the beauty of the gospel is put on display for a watching world. So from Titus chapter 2, uh, let's read together here verses 1 through 6. So again, coming off where we left off last week, Ty, or Paul has given instruction to Titus for disqualified leaders, and now he's going to create a contrast. We saw unhealthy, unqualified leaders last week. Now here's the contrast for Titus chapter 2, verse 1. He says, but as for you, as in, as opposed to what he laid out in verses 10 through 16 in chapter 1, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now we'll call it a time out here for just a second. If you're a uh, underline in your Bible type person, circle, make notes in your Bible type of person, I would encourage you just to underline or to circle those two words, sound doctrine. Those are really important words. We're going to come back to them here in just a moment. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. 
They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So as, as fun as it's been to really dive into doctrine and theology as we, you know, we've worked through the book of Titus over the last few weeks, what we get now in the book of Titus is just very practical instruction for how it is we're called to relate to one another as men and women within the home and within the church. And there is instruction for every generation of men and women within the body of Christ. And, and Paul lays out for here, for Titus, really the plan of discipleship practically and relationally within the life of the, uh, of the local church. Now, if you go back to verse 1, again, very important words that I ask you to underline there and encourage you to, to pay attention to. Paul is exhorting Titus here to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, here's why those two words, sound doctrine, right there, are so important. At the, at the end of chapter 1, Paul has already addressed false teachers. He called them, in that chapter, insubordinate, unbelieving, deceptive, defiled, detestable. And now he's created the contrast. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, now, this is so important for us because whenever we get into the function of how men and women relate to one another in the home and the body of Christ, what many will do who disagree with some of the places we're going to go today is say, well, there were unique circumstances in Crete, and, and this is, you've really got to understand the context of Crete, and, and what happened in Crete really doesn't apply to the body of Christ today. These were unique circumstances for the people in Crete, and so this really doesn't have to be abided by uh, when it comes to followers of Jesus today. Here's the problem with that is that Paul doesn't say, teach what accords with the circumstances in Crete. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. As in, teach what accords with what is good and right and true in the eyes of God. He's not just addressing unique cultural circumstances in Crete. We saw this in Ephesus a couple of weeks ago. God's ordained for, for men to serve as the spiritual leaders of their home and in the church, and that's what 1 Timothy 2 is about. It's, it's not about uh, oppressing women. It's not intended to be demeaning or, or subjecting uh, of women. It's, it's intended to show men their God-given responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in the home and the church. And that wasn't unique to Ephesus in 1 Timothy 2. That was unique to Genesis chapter 3. Like, that's what God had planned from eternity past and designed in his good and perfect creation. And so in the same way, these are not unique circumstances to Crete. This applies to all believers in the body of Christ everywhere. For all time, this is what accords with sound doctrine. This is what is good and right and true in God's eyes. So what we're going to find in verses 1 through 6 is the type of community that the gospel creates. As we preach gospel doctrine, this is the type of culture that will undergird the doctrine that we're proclaiming from the word of God. Now, doctrine is just really a set of teachings, set of beliefs. And this word sound, the way it's used in, in the Greek, it was used by Paul to refer to something that was healthy or fit. It could be used in this cultural context to really reference more healthy hygiene. So in opposition to the false teachers in chapter 1, whose teaching was detestable and defiled, so their teaching was sick, this is doctrine that will lead to spiritual health and life within the church. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. But he doesn't launch into a lecture on the atonement, on the virgin birth, the authority of, of Scripture, the Trinity. He goes on to lay out God's good and perfect design for men and women in the home and the church. So we see first in these verses sound doctrine for spiritual fathers. He's going to speak to every generation of men and women within the body of Christ. Sound doctrine, 
for spiritual fathers. Verses 1 and 2, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. So, so God has ordained men to serve as the spiritual leaders of their home and of the church, and this is the type of men that he's calling us to be in that leadership. And so right away, you know, this takes away any sense that men are supposed to lead with some sort of domineering, oppressive authoritarianism. Everything we read here is the opposite of, of that stereotype. He says that men are to be uh, sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. Now, we saw last week that the culture of men in Crete, they were characterized and stereotyped as being lazy. They were immature. They were irresponsible. Even the leaders were deceptive. They were motivated by money. They were devoted to teaching myths, so their teaching lacked any real substance. But Paul calls men here to be sober-minded. That This word sober-minded, it means to be level-headed to be even-keeled, to make sound judgments. He said we should be dignified, noble, and respectable in our character and conduct. We should be self-controlled. We've mastered ourselves. We've mastered our impulses. We've mastered our desires. We've not passively given ourselves over to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of human life. We are actively waging war against sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're to be sound in faith. So we have a strong daily walk with the Lord. We're pursuing him in his word. We're pursuing him in prayer. We're making every effort to grow in godliness and relationship to Christ. We should be sound in love. So our love for the Lord is strong. Our love for others is strong. And we should be sound in steadfastness, meaning that we're not just going to tap out the moment following Jesus gets difficult. This is who Paul calls men to be. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is who we are called to be, the types of leaders that we're called to be in our homes and in the church. Now, again, this is very much contrasting against more of a cultural message. Uh, Language that we use here a lot, sometimes it's overused, sometimes it is rightly used, but just this idea of of what's being called toxic masculinity. Now, we have to be careful with that because we we are kind of in a cultural moment right now where there's uh, an effort to really eliminate any sort of differences between men and women in some very unhealthy ways. Uh, There certainly is a toxic level of masculinity that tends to be stereotyped by, you know, men just sleeping with as many women as possible, drinking as much as possible. We drive big trucks. We watch UFC. We we play football. You know, like that's, that's the type of stuff men do, right? Like that, that's the type of stereotype that we easy, easily drift into with the toxic masculinity. And so, so sometimes I fear what happens though, is that we, in the name of not wanting to become that, we throw out masculinity altogether. And that's not what's intended at all. While we absolutely should work against a toxic masculinity, we should champion and uphold biblical masculinity. And you ask, well, what what type of masculinity is that? Well, well, we just read it. It's men who are sober-minded. I mean, my goodness, in in our cultural moment right now of of conspiracy theories and polarization and just this climate of constant hostility and hatred, how desperately do we need men who are sober-minded? sober-minded in leadership who are dignified in a culture that objectifies and subjugates women. How desperately we need men who are dignified, who are self-controlled, who are sound in faith, who are pursuing the Lord, who are growing in their knowledge and understanding of his words so that they can faithfully turn and teach the next generation the things of the Lord. We've got to quit giving in so passively to this boys will be boys mentality in our culture. Men, we are called to something so much higher than this. We want to avoid unhealthy masculinity, but we want to champion godly masculinity. Men, here's the reality for us this morning. You read through a list like this. Here's the reality. None of us can do this apart from Jesus. But here's what we need to recognize. As much as we may feel that we fall short of those ideals, 
The word of God never commands us to do something that his spirit will not empower us to do. It is not impossible to be these types of men within our home and within the church. Men, even if you feel today that you fall woefully short of the ideal of a godly man in the home and in the church, this is what we can know with great confidence. The very best gift that you can give to your wife, the best gift you can give to your children, the best gift you can give as a leader in the church is to have a heart that is deeply satisfied in Jesus Christ. The best gift that we can give to our families, the best gift that we can give men as we lead within the church to others is to be radically in love with Jesus. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he will compel us to be the people that he's called us to be. This is what the Lord desires for men within the body of Christ. But next we see sound doctrine for spiritual mothers. We've seen instruction for spiritual fathers. Here's sound doctrine for spiritual mothers. And it carries over into sound doctrine for spiritual daughters as well. So verses 3 through 5. So he says, older women likewise. So in the same ways that men are called to be sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled and sound in faith and love and steadfastness, likewise, in the same regard, older women are to be reverent in behavior. This is really rich language we're going to come back to in just a second. Reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good teach what is good. And this is their responsibility to the next generation of women within the church. This is what's good. And so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we've seen sound doctrine for spiritual fathers. Here's now sound doctrine for spiritual mothers. This language, as I said just a moment ago, reverent in behavior, it's very, very rich. Ladies, I hope you'll pay attention to this. This, this language, reverent in behavior, it could literally be rendered behavior that is temple-fitting. Behavior that is fit for service within the temple. It, it's, it's language that can characterize someone who's essentially functioning as a priestess within the temple of the Lord. What the Lord desires for godly women within the church is for their lives to be marked and to be overflowing with the presence and the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be, uh, to be set apart in this way, to be holy and, and upright in, in their behavior. And this is a contrast to what they should not be. Now again, we saw last week that's uh, in Crete, heavy drinking among men and women, uh, kind of this very uh, boorish, immoral type culture. This wasn't just tolerated, it was celebrated uh, in the Cretan culture. And so Paul addresses this. He says that women should be reverent in their behavior, so holy in their, and upright in their living, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. So be reverent in behavior as opposed to what was happening in Crete, which was just a culture among the women of slander and being enslaved uh, to, to much wine. Now, uh, this word slander that's used here, it comes from the same Greek term that we use to refer to the name devil. And so slander, according to God's word, it's, it's literally devilish speech. It's satanic speech. It's character assassination. And it, it is this because when you look through scripture, Satan is regularly presented to us as the one who is the accuser. Gossip and slander, that these are, these are sins that, man, we can so easily cave into and, and give into. And so just the same way in our culture today that there's this uh, sort of a culture of toxic masculinity, there's also this stereotype of a cultural uh, toxic femininity, femininity. And we have to be careful to avoid each one of these extremes. And so this is probably more stereotyped in our culture today, kind of as the real housewives type culture, you know what I'm talking about? 
Like it's just, it's wine o'clock all the time and it's, it's gossip hour and we're just sitting together and like, and, and listen, here, here's, we joke about it, but man, like we don't just tolerate this as a culture. We celebrate it. It's like made for TV, grab your popcorn type of material. And we love it, man. We devour it and, and we eat this up. And this is what was happening in Crete. This is what continues to be championed today. This is not intended to understand to be a stereotype of all women, but, but what Paul is getting across here is, listen, women, your lives should be marked by reverent, godly behavior, not the immorality of this world. I shared this um, uh, not too long ago, I think a couple years back. Um, these are the words of Scott Sauls, you know, just speaking to what really gossip is what slander is, because this is very sadly, I think particularly here in the South, this is one of those kind of culturally acceptable sins. Like this is one that we've kind of made safe. We like to share quote unquote prayer requests, right? Really we're throwing somebody under the bus. And, and this, is, this is what Scott Sauls has had to say about gossip. And I, I want to read this. It's kind of intense, but I think it speaks very clearly to what gossip and slander truly are. This isn't in your notes. I just added this in today, but he said, gossip is pornography of the mouth. A lustful fantasy in its own right, a cheap thrill at another's expense, an objectifying of their humanity, an assault on their dignity while making zero commitment to them, all for a cheap, self-serving, shameful rush. Listen, in the same way that sexual sin will blow up a home, gossip and slander are the sins that will blow up a church. And Paul says these have no place in the body of Christ. Women, let your lives be marked by godliness. Let them be overflowing with the goodness and the holiness and the gracious of God. Be reverent in behavior as opposed to slander that is devilish and satanic. Don't be slaves to wine. Be slaves only to Jesus Christ. This is how the lives of women should be marked. And he said, instead, so instead of these things, teach what is good. And so th this is where we start to see the discipleship responsibility to the next generation of women within the body of Christ. And he goes on to say, these are the things that are good. This is what is to be taught as good and discipled as good. Verse four, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we've seen sound doctrine for spiritual fathers and mothers. Third, we see sound doctrine for spiritual daughters. So first, Paul is going to address the young women in the church who are married and have families. He says, teach them, train them, to love their husbands and children. Now, this is interesting because there's a few places in Scripture where men are commanded to love our wives. We saw one of these a few weeks ago from uh, Paul's words to Ephesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We see that command uh, for men a few times in Scripture. This is the one time women are commanded to love their husbands. And the language that, that uh, Paul uses here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's really interesting. He says, train them, teach them to love their husbands and children. This tells us, I think, at least two things. That women are encouraged to train other women to love their husbands and children teaches us, first, that love is something that has to be learned. We don't just fall in love, we also have to learn how to stay in love. We have to work at this. We have to be educated in this. We're not always gonna feel it every single day, and so train them to love means that we've got to, in different ways, learn to love. And then for husbands and kids in the room, what this tells us, is sometimes we're probably going to be really difficult to love. There's going to be moments that that encouragement is necessary because we're being a bunch of punks, right? And so I'll just like give an example from my own house this past week. I came home on Monday and 
kind of had a, a difficult circumstance that I was dealing with um, over the course of a couple weeks and was just frustrated about it. I came home at the end of the day and was rushing, trying to get things ready. I was going to go, you know, coach my son's seven to nine-year-old football team, practice that night, and then practice got canceled, so I'm frustrated about that. And, and I'm just kind of walking in, just kind of not in a good mood. I'm, I'm venting about it. Emily's asking how my day was, and I gave her a whole lot more than she wanted to hear in that moment. And she just kind of very jokingly, she goes, well, somebody's grumpy. And, and, and instead of me taking that like, okay, like I, I probably need to, yeah, get, get over it and move on. Um, I said, well, you'd be grumpy too if you were dealing with what I'm dealing with today. And my wife, just true to form, if you know Emily, this is right on brand, right on tone for her. She just, there's a pause for about three seconds. She just very lovingly, graciously says, well, I think the Lord's calling you to get over it. <laughs> Noted. Train them to love. Because sometimes the husbands, the children, like, we're not easy to love. Like, like she spends a good chunk of time. Like we're, we're in the process of moving right now to our, our new home here in a couple of weeks. And so she'd spent like all day Friday, you know, purging stuff from our apartment, getting the boys stuff cleaned up, packed up yesterday afternoon, disaster. Not so lovable in that moment. Train them to love, teach them to love. Our culture, man, we place such an emphasis on falling in love. We have to place more emphasis on staying in love. We received such wise counsel before we got married as an older spiritual father who did our, our premarital counseling, and he just told us one day, I didn't believe him because we were, you know, pie in the sky, puppy love and everything. He was like, listen, you've got to understand, there's going to be some days you just don't feel love for each other. Yeah, I'm 22. I'm like, whatever, man. You don't know what we have. It's different. <laughs> Lasted about a month, I think. You know, I don't know. Like, it was... It comes back to that, man. He had the wisdom, the foresight to tell us, listen, you're going to have to work at this. It's not just going to come easily every single day. And so, man, man, for the older women within the church, like how desperately younger women in the church, they need this. They need that encouragement. The day that, that the husbands were being difficult to deal with, the day that the children are very difficult to deal with, it's, it's the wisdom of the godly mother who can speak into their life and remind them, sister, this too shall pass. And, and in particular, you know, I think for younger women in our culture today, there's two really conflicting and, and difficult messages that they're having to deal with. One is coming from the church, and one's coming from the world. Sometimes there's this pressure from the church for younger women. It's like their lives are unfulfilled. It's like, listen, you got to get married. you got to start having babies. You need to have a home and start making that home. And it's just pressure, pressure, pressure. When are you getting married? When are you having kids? Which, by the way, is terribly insensitive to people who desire to be married. It's terribly insensitive at many times to, to young mothers who have miscarried multiple times. That's our family story. We went through that a few times. We need to be very, very careful with what we're pushing and, and, and what we're, we're pleading for here. And so there's this pressure, like your life is unfulfilled. If you don't right away at 21 years old, get married and start having children and build a home. But then there's also this secular pressure coming from the world that tells them, listen, if you do get married young, you're throwing your life away. You start having children young, you're throwing your life away. You could be pursuing your career. You should be building this up. And listen, this is why there has to be the influence of godly women who have some decades under their belt, who can come along their daughters in Christ and remind them, your identity is not in getting married. Your identity is not in having children. Your identity is not in having a home. Your identity is not in a successful career. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. That's your contentment. That's your satisfaction. That's your peace. And this is the responsibility and the call of the older women to the younger women within the church. It goes on uh, to say more practical instruction. We've seen this repeated in the first two. It's going to be repeated in the fourth as well. Uh, he encourages them to be self-controlled and pure. This is part of what is being taught. So physically, spiritually, emotionally, sexually, those impulses are reined in. 
They're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're surrendered to Jesus Christ. They're being put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, pursuing righteousness and holiness before the Lord. And this is where it gets a little bit more controversial. And this is where we've seen this be used and abused in some really unfortunate ways. It says that women should be working, I want to emphasize that word working, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. So again, uh, some of us are familiar with this. You know where I'm going right now is, is this has historically been used in many contexts to say, see, women should not hold jobs outside of the home. Women's place is in the home. You shouldn't be working outside the home. You need to be busy at home, taking care of the husband, taking care of the kids, taking care of the house. That is your responsibility. And, and many, listen, have gone as far as to say that women are in sin if they take jobs outside of the home, which I'm always like, hey, what are single moms supposed to do, by the way? Like, like, let's just understand this. So, so what is the context here? Because it does say they should be working at home. Well, again, church, this is why we use our whole Bible to do theology. We don't just cherry pick one verse and build a whole set of teachings around it. We need our entire Bible. And, and what's amazing to me is that particularly in conservative circles, like we champion this ideal of a Proverbs 31 woman. Like that's, that's the ideal. That's what we're striving for. Just the same way we see uh, this list for godly men within the church. We kind of have this ideal Proverbs 31 woman. We hold this up in conservative circles, which blows my mind because Proverbs 31 explicitly praises this ideal woman for her work outside of the home. Like go, go read. Let's, let's just open our Bibles together. Go uh, Proverbs 31. I want to read here together uh, verses 13 through 16. Because again, if, if this is the ideal, then certainly this is not a prohibition against uh, women having uh, some sort of career. Verses thir- uh, 16 through 18, it says of this ideal woman that we, we just kind of deify, I think at times, within church circles. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. Listen, this is a far cry from a woman who is entrapped to the four walls of the house, sewing and knitting and cooking and just waiting for a husband to come rescue her all day long. Man, she's moving real estate and making it rain. Like, I mean, this is someone who is business savvy. This is someone who is smart. This is someone who's hardworking. She's diligent. Man, she's got her act together. She's burning the candle at both ends. And so the emphasis here is on the word working, working in the home, whole context, as opposed to just drifting around from house to house and gossip and slander. That's what's being stressed here in this passage. It's not a prohibition against working outside the home. It's an exhortation to be diligent in your work, both inside the home and outside the home. It's, it's really, again, it's not a prohibition against work. It's really a prohibition against laziness. Like, just be on guard against this. Like, don't let that be what marks your life, is just kind of drifting from place to place without any sense of purpose. Women, understand, God has uniquely gifted you in extraordinary ways. And he desires that the gifts of women be used to their fullest capacity, both in the body of Christ and in the home. And so, listen, I know some of you are coming from some very different church backgrounds, and, and you might have a legitimate concern. You're like, well, how could I know that that's safe here? Like, how could I know here at this church that, that my gifts really are going to be championed and used. And I, I would just say the easy answer is, man, look at our church staff. Go to our website. We, we, half of our staff are women who are using their gifts to extraordinary potential for the glory of God. And we're going to do everything as we can. Man, did, did Amanda not just kill it leading up here in song a few minutes ago? 
And Natalie, I'm like, we're we're just going to keep doing that. Like, we want to elevate women to the fullest capacity and potential within the guidelines that have been given to us in the Word of God. So, So men, this is what this means for us. If women are not flourishing both in our homes and in the church, then we're not faithfully leading. That's on us. Our leadership should lead to women in our homes and in the church using their gifts to the fullest potential for the glory of God within the guidelines of what the Lord has ordained to us in his word. This is what's been given to us. And this piece of discipleship, it's so important, critically important, that it be passed from one generation to the next. Uh, One more thing quickly on this, because I want to talk about this word subjection and submission. Again, whenever we talk about a wife being submitted to her husband, uh, unfortunately, historically, again, that language has been used to keep women in subjugation. It's it's more inferiority, and it's about men leading kind of with a domineering, authoritarian-type spirit. And John Stott shed some really good light on this passage. I want to read uh, these words from him. He says, this subjection contains no notion of inferiority and no demand for obedience, but rather a recognition that within the equal value of the sexes, God has established a created order which includes a masculine headship, not of authority, still less of autocracy, but of responsibility and loving care. Now, uh, time out for just a second. So if you go to 1 Timothy 2, we do see that God has ordained for men to serve as the spiritual authority within the church as pastors and elders. What Stott is referring to here is authority and autocracy. If you read the full context of the book that this was taken from, is a, a domineering authoritarian spirit. That's what he means by that. And so we, we absolutely champion and uphold uh, men serving as pastors and elders, and yet we do not do that in a domineering authoritarian way. That's what he's getting at here. Christian marriage marriages and Christian homes, which exhibit a combination of sexual equality and complementarity, beautifully commend the gospel. And those which fall short of this ideal bring the gospel into disrepute. Paul says here that this is doctrine. It's sound doctrine for young women. And why is this sound doctrine for older women and young women? He says that the word of God may not be reviled. What we put on display when we as men and women within the church embrace our unique, God-given, complementary roles among with one another, corresponding roles that we've been called to carry out, what we display is the gospel itself. And when we refuse to uphold and to champion what it is the Lord has called us to do and how it is he's called us to live and relate with one another, what we end up compromising is the message of the gospel. Listen, this is why Satan hates marriage so much. Marriage is the gospel in motion. It's supposed to be a picture of a loving husband. Going back to Paul's words in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what does he do for the church? He gave himself up for her. Which means a wife submitted to her husband assumes a husband who is submitted to Jesus Christ. It assumes a husband who is sober-minded, who is dignified, who is self-controlled. It assumes a husband who is steadfast. It assumes a husband who's walking in love, sound in love, sound in faith, who's pursuing the Lord. And so it's important that we have clearly both of these pictures in mind. So we've seen sound doctrine for fathers and mothers and daughters. Fourth, and finally, we see sound doctrine for spiritual sons. And listen, this is how I know that the Lord has a sense of humor, because We've given, given all this explicit, detailed instruction. Older men, here's, this is for you. Older women, this is for you. Younger women, this is for you. Younger men, one single instruction. You ready for it? Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. It's like, that's enough. 
If we can just get this one, that's enough. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So listen, I want to just talk to the the younger brothers in in this room for just a second. I I would say if you're like in the 25 and under range, just hear my heart here for just a moment. Being self-controlled, that this is about having our bodies under control. This is about having our minds, our thoughts under control. This is about having our words, our speech under control, our desires under control. Listen to me. I want to challenge you to completely forsake the boys will be boys mentality of our culture. To renounce it in the name of Jesus Christ. Young men, you are not helplessly and hopelessly resigned to your sinful impulses and desires. If you are in Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no temptation that has overtaken you that is more powerful than the power of Jesus. For every temptation that you face, the Lord has provided a way out. Boys will be boys does not fly when it comes to measuring up against the word of God. We're called to live lives that are noble, that are godly, that are dignified. And part of the reason why women have been so terribly denigrated and objectified even within the church today is because men have modeled and mirrored more of the world than of the word. We've got to tether ourselves to this. When you go back to the first murder that's committed in Scripture of Cain murdering his brother Abel, he was jealous of him. He hated him. Abel's sacrifice was accepted before the Lord, but Cain's sacrifice wasn't. So he hated him for it. And the Lord speaks to Cain. He says, listen to me. He says, sin is crouching at your door. You have to master it. It's crouching at your door, and you have to master it. And listen, by the power of Christ within you, you have everything that you need to master your sin. You do not have to live enslaved to your sinful desires. And I am so desperate to see a generation of young, godly men rise up who are serious about the Word of God, who are serious about pursuing the Lord, who are serious about fighting the sin that's in your lives, who are serious more about your spiritual sisters' hearts than you are their bodies. You're more concerned about seeing them come to faith in Jesus Christ and grow in their faith in Jesus Christ than you are what you can get from them physically. Listen, boys, I've been doing this for a long time. Guys have been doing this for a long time. Young guys, you have a desire to be married. This is free for you today. You don't have to pay me for this. This is just my job. I'm giving this to you for free. Listen, I've never spoken to a single young woman who's come to me and said, you know what I really wish we had? Less godly guys. Like there's just so many of them. Like, like it's just, it just way too many. Like, I don't even know how to pick them out. What, what there is a desperate desire for or some young men who are pursuing the Lord and is serious about pursuing the Lord. And listen, hear me out today. In the same way that there is no temptation that's overtaken you, that you cannot by the power of the Holy Spirit put to death, there's also no sin that you've committed, no matter how serious it is and no matter how many times you've committed it, that can't be put to death through faith in Jesus Christ. Because I know what happens a lot of time for guys, man, especially if you're struggling like with sexual sin, you're addicted to pornography, like what, man, the guilt and the shame that just comes with that. And the posture of guys, like we're full of pride. Our desire typically and our first response typically is not to run to the church, it's to run away from the church. Listen, run to Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus Christ. And you're not going to be met with guilt. You're not going to be met with shame. You're not going to be met with condemnation. You're going to be met with redemption and forgiveness because that's what he offers through faith in his name. This is sound doctrine for all of us as the body of believers. This is men and women, how we're to relate to one another and how we display the gospel in our world and through our relationships uh, with each other. So as we wrap up this morning here uh, very quickly, two challenges that I want to give us 
Uh, two challenges that I want to give us in light of, of what we've seen here. I'm going to uh, read both of them at first, and then I'm going to go through and just explain each one a little bit more in depth. The first challenge for all of us, men and women within the body of Christ, is to embrace our unique God-ordained roles within the church and the home. And second is also to fulfill our responsibility as spiritual fathers and mothers to disciple our spiritual sons and daughters. So let's go to the first year for a second, embracing our unique God-ordained roles in the church and in the home. It's clear as we work together through Scripture what God has ordained in His good and perfect design is for men to be the spiritual leaders of our home and of the church. And it's really for women to take the role of primarily being the manager of the physical home. So where men, it's more focusing on the spiritual leadership. It's women focusing more on the physical leadership. And that's kind of how we're supposed to work together and how we're called to work together in fulfilling our roles within the body of Christ. The entire narrative of scripture is based on this male-female complementarity. You see it from, from the earliest moments in Scripture. And again, it is not a result of sin. It's not the result of sin entering into the world. It's what the world was before sin entered in. I mean, just go back to creation. There's always this corresponding complementarity that exists at every stage of creation. So uh, there's day and there's night. There's morning and there's evening. There's dry land and there's water. There's land animals and there's sea animals. There's the ground, there's the sky. There's, there's always this complementarity that exists, a corresponding complementarity that exists at every phase of creation, most explicitly in the design of male and female. And that's not just limited to the book of Genesis. Man, that's carried all throughout Scripture. We see the Lord consistently referring to his people as a bride. I mean, God thinks so highly of marriage that the primary metaphor that he uses to describe Christ's relationship with the church is that of a bride and a groom. It's this display of this male-female complementarity of Jesus, who is the good groom, who comes for the church, his bride. This is the picture we see over and over and over again that's displayed in the message of the gospel. We look forward to the day when the good groom, Jesus, will come for his bride, the church. We look forward to the day at the consummation of all things, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will sit down and hold a wedding feast. That's where all of this is going. So, so you ask, well, you know, well, man, Taylor, like, do we really lose anything? Like, are we really going to be stuck in these rigid structures in the 21st century? Like, what do we really lose in this distinction of male-female complementarity? Church, what we lose is the gospel. Like, th this is sound doctrine. This is what displays the gospel. It's when we relate to one another as God's word has called us to relate to one another. Men and women, we are called equally, but we are called differently. And ladies in particular, listen, differently does not mean less than. And the way that we see this displayed and the way we display this to others is displayed for us in the Godhead itself. If one God, that we call this the doctrine of the Trinity, who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen, the Son joyfully submitted to the will of the Father, but he was no less God than the Father. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet all three of them play very, very different complementary roles. You know, what happens if Jesus doesn't want to submit to the will of the Father? Like, what if in Gethsemane, Jesus got on his knees and said, no, I'm not going to do that. There's no hope for our salvation. He joyfully submitted to the will of the Father because he knew that he was the beloved Son in whom the Father was well-pleased. And so that's what's displayed in marriage. That's what's displayed between men and women within the body of Christ. It's the husband who has said, I will lay down my life for you. We saw it two weeks ago. It's the authority that insists on serving. It's the authority that says, you will not out-humble me. 
I will continually make myself less. I will continually give of myself to build you up, to see you built up. It's the type of authority modeled by Jesus at the Last Supper when he insisted that he be the one who washed the disciples' feet and not them washing his. That's the type of authority that we're called to lead from. It's a self-giving, sacrificial, revealing the love of Christ authority. And then it's women joyfully submitting to that, saying, yes, of course, just the way we as followers of Jesus joyfully come under Jesus. We're like, yes, of course we'll submit to you. The way you've given yourself up for us. And that's what's displayed in marriage. That's what's displayed within the body of Christ. So this grand mystery of the Trinity, it's revealed and it's displayed through how we relate to one another as men and women within the church and the home. We get to clear up that. Isn't the Trinity confusing, right? Who's ever just stayed awake trying to think about that at night? We get to see it on visible display through the way we interact with one another and the way Jesus interacted with his heavenly father. So we embrace our unique God-ordained roles within the church and in the home, trusting that this is God's best plan for the flourishing of women, men and women within the church and the world. And second, as we close out, the challenge is to fulfill our responsibility as fathers and mothers to disciple our sons and daughters. Now, as, as we've worked through this together this morning, no, it's, it's not lost on me that particularly, you know, if you're a single parent, you, you might be sitting there going like, hey, what is, what is my place in this? Because I'm, I'm trying to wear both hats at once, like I'm the spiritual leader in my home and I'm the physical leader in my home and like that picture's not there. And listen, this underscores the importance and the place of the local church. So even if you don't have physical children, even if your children are grown, you know, and they've moved out of the home, every single one of us, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, we have a responsibility to that next generation. We have that responsibility. We, we, listen, we, we got some single dads, we got some single moms, they're trying to do both on their own, they need us. And we cannot forsake that responsibility. Yes, and in many of us, like we're, we're trying to just raise kids ourselves. We're just trying to figure this out ourselves. But this is a community effort. I mean, it literally takes a village to pass on the message of the gospel to the next generation, to ensure that every single child that the Lord has entrusted to this family, to this community, to this body, that we're doing everything that we can to lead them to know love and follow Jesus Christ. There's a reason why here in just a second, we're going to quote Psalm 45, 17, like we do every single week. It's to remind us of our responsibility to cause his name remembered where, church? In all generations. And what's the purpose of that? So the nations will praise him forever and ever. That's what's been given to us. That's what's been entrusted to us. It's men coming along the next generation of men and pouring into them spiritually challenging them, encouraging them, rebuking when necessary, picking them up whenever they fall down and fail. It's, it's older godly women within the church coming alongside those spiritual daughters, your younger sisters in the faith, and encouraging them and holding them accountable and pushing them through when they're feeling worn out. When we embrace this as a body of believers, when we champion this as the body of Christ, this is what will build up the church. This is what accords with sound doctrine, which displays the gospel to a desperately needy world. So you just bow your heads with me this morning as we close out our time together. We're going to come to the table at communion here in just a moment where we look forward to that day, that marriage feast where we are seated, sitting with Jesus. 
the day after the, the great groom has come for his bride, the church, and we're united with him forever. That's what we're looking forward to in this. And so, Fathers, we come before you this morning as we are prepared to come to the table. We come in confession, knowing that we have sinned, we have fallen short of your glory. We are in need of your forgiveness. We are in need of repentance and redemption. We need to have our hearts and our minds purified. So, so whatever sin you carry into this room this morning, we just take a moment to confess that, to lay that at the feet of Jesus. And as we do that, we ask the Lord for a heart of true and genuine repentance. Repentance isn't just feeling sorry for our sin or just the rush and feeling of conviction for sin. Repentance is the desire to turn from our sin, to stop our sin, to cease our sin, and listen, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. Self-control was the directive for all four generations that we saw today. We can do this. And finally, Lord, we thank you for the broken body and shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask now that as we worship and as we sing, as we partake, as we respond, that you would be glorified, that your church would be edified and built up, that it would all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you in this place. We ask it all in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen.